Good morning. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for the people that are here. Father, thank you for your word and the truth that um, lies within its pages. Lord, I pray that our hearts are opened um, and our e the ears of our heart, Lord, to hear what you have for us this morning. We love you You're in your precious name. Amen. If I haven't met you yet, I am Lisa Stonehouse, and it is um, a joy to be with you this morning on this really cozy day. I'm hoping it rains and we all get good naps this afternoon. Um, we are working, just a second, I don't know why this little thing, there we go. Um, we are working through the book of Genesis this year, and we've met a lot of really interesting people with a lot of interesting stories. Um, and I think the stories of them are so real, and they've resonated deeply with me, and I'm hoping they've resonated with you as well. But also, we realize that they're just people. The people in the Bible are just like us. They do incredible things to move God's story forward, but they're also just people that are flawed and wounded and traumatized. Last week, Brent wrapped up the series on Isaac. And studying him, we talked a lot about trauma and what it does to us and what steps we can take to begin that healing journey of finding our rest in Jesus who came to give us life and life abundant. Today, I'm starting a series that will walk through the life of Isaac's son, Jacob. We'll talk a little bit more about Isaac today, but there are a lot of layers in the story of Jacob. And from those things, we're going to lean into some more heavy things also. We're going to talk about wounds, and we're going to talk about forgiveness in this series. For the next few weeks, we'll be looking at how some of the things that were done to us or said to us have deeply affected us, and how some of the things we've done or the things we've said have affected people around us. Wounds and forgiveness. Is it possible that we can utter the words, I forgive you, and truly mean them in the face of some of our deepest pains? Can we actually walk through healing and get to the place where we can say to the people who have hurt us the deepest, I forgive you? Whether those words are spoken to them or whether they're words that we say audibly to ourselves in the safety of our home. I believe we can. It's not easy, it doesn't feel fair, and sometimes we may not even want to. But with the tender grace of God, I truly believe that we can. These next few weeks, we're gonna to get to know two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And as their story unfolds, we're gonna find some really ugly parts of the story, but we're also gonna find some really beautiful parts. There's wounds and there's forgiveness. The Isaac and the trauma stories felt really personal. And from the conversations that Brent and I have had with so many of you, I think it felt that way for you as well. And I think these next stories about Jacob and Esau, the wounds and the forgiveness, are going to feel really personal too. Because wounds are painful and personal. And walking out forgiveness can be painful and beautiful, but it's really personal too. 
As I studied the story of Jacob and Esau the past week or two, most of it felt familiar. Some parts are kind of funny, actually. I picked up some new things, and parts of the story stuck a, struck a chord in my heart that caused my soul to ache. Because wounds and forgiveness make up my story, and I know they make up many of yours as well. And the thing is, I've read this story before. I know the story of Jacob and Esau. I heard it in Sunday school as a little girl. I've read it to my kids in their Bible stories. I've read it in my own devotions a time or two and a sermon here or there. But have you ever read a story and then you encounter that same story years later? Only this time, when you read it, it's really familiar. Like, it's, you're reading it for the first time. And it's not that the story has changed. The story's still the same, but you've changed. You're different. I was thrifting a few weeks ago, and I bought a box set of my absolute favorite book series, Anne of Green Gables, all eight books. I read those books literally dozens of times as a girl, and I couldn't put them down. But I never read them as an adult. And so reading them was new and beautiful. And one of the funniest things to me was how many old ladies were mentioned in the books, and then they would say how old they were, and they were all like in their middle 40s. I was like, gosh, that's, that's kind of weird. <laughs> but through reading them, the personality of the dear, sweet, thoughtful Matthew reminded me of my precious dad-in-law. And I cried when he died because I understood Anne's pain, and it, it felt familiar from losing him. I understood deeper how she was treated before she came to Green, Green Gables, things I didn't pick up on when I was little. The beauty of how much she loved and treasured being a mother. The things that Anne said about having a mother's heart resonated me in a way that as a 12-year-old girl, I didn't understand. And then in the later books, I shared in her delight and her ache that you feel as your little children grow up and become adults. It was so beautiful to read all of that again, and Anne's story felt so personal to me. I wonder if we can read through the stories of Jacob and Esau with that same lens of reading them for the first time. The stories that are probably familiar to us, yet asking the Lord to help us see it through a new heart and eyes. A heart and an eyes to see our wounds and to see where we need to forgive or ask for forgiveness. I wonder if as we delve into the stories of Jacob and Esau, that it will feel personal to us too. And I think this is a story that we can really appreciate as we're older and after we may have been wounded. I hope this series resonates with you because when we name a wound, light begins to shine, and that is where healing takes place. Not only is this a painful story of betrayal and loss, but woven throughout it is a beautiful message of hope and forgiveness and restoration that I know many of us long for. But before we can talk about forgiveness, we need to take an honest look at that thing, at that moment, of those words and actions that wounded us so deeply. Because I think, for some of us, that moment has so buried itself in our souls 
that it has influenced so many other areas of our lives. There might be resentment or hate, deep wounds. Our actions and our thoughts and our words often come from that wound. And I believe that Jesus wants to set us free from that over the course of the next few weeks. Will you open your Bible with me to the beginning of Jacob's story? Genesis 25, verse 19. I keep hearing that hum. This, so we'll begin reading with verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Armenian. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And then we read these words in verse 28. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we already see that this story is filled with pain. First, Isaac and Rebekah experienced the pain of infertility, much like Sarah and Abraham. They're unable to have children. I find it interesting, though, that Isaac handles their infertility much differently than his mom, Sarah, did. Sarah couldn't get pregnant, and she took matters into her own hand and gave her husband, Abraham, her servant, Hagar, as his wife so they could have a baby. Well, Isaac and Rebekah couldn't get pregnant either, and they were married for 20 years before they had Jacob and Esau. But I wonder if Isaac learned from his mom's lack of faith and her trust in the Lord to pray on behalf of his wife. Isaac persevered in his prayer life on behalf of his wife, asking God for a baby. I think that is such a beautiful thing for Rebecca to know that her husband was praying for her, asking the Lord for a baby. And then they got pregnant. I am absolutely not telling you this morning that you always get what you prayed for. I prayed for some really, really good things, and the Lord hasn't answered my prayer for those in the way that I hoped him to. But prayer is an intimate way of communicating our hearts to our Heavenly Father. But I've also had prayers that God has answered in beautiful and unexpected ways. And our prayer life is a life of trust and surrender. So this moment was a moment that they prayed for and they, they got what they prayed for. Isaac and Rebecca prayed for a child and they were given twins. 
People talk about your twin being your built-in, best friend, your playmate. They hurt when you hurt. And that's how twins should be, right? But from birth, we read that these twins have odds against them. And it's fueled by their own parents. And this is where we see more layers of pain. We read that their dad loved Isaac and their mom loved Jacob. That's huge. If you've ever felt unloved by a parent, then you know what that feels like. <clears throat> I was with a childhood friend the other day and we were talking about her parents and how growing up they had distinct favorites and how it's caused wounds and a divide in their family years later. And I could hear the pain in her voice, even as she joked a bit about who was mom's favorite and who was dad's favorite, and then who wasn't a favorite. Wounds. In verse 24, it says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her room, womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. There's so much joy and anticipation in naming a baby. Dreaming up lists and trying out how they sound, writing them down. While I did look up the name meanings of my kids before they were born, it didn't decide necessarily what their name was going to be. In our culture, name meanings don't carry the weight that they did in the Hebrew culture. So Tom means twin, and I'm really hoping you're not a twin, because that's going to, okay, phew, otherwise I was going to mess that up. <laughs> Molly means of the sea. Now, I've been to Molly's house. She does not live by the sea. Kim means from the meadow of the royal fortress. Now, their dog is named Tank, which, I mean, is kind of like a fortress, but I've never heard her talk about her fortress. So basically, names now are chosen because we like how they sound. And if they have a beautiful meaning, that's just a bonus. So this first baby is born. The Bible says the first one was very red at birth and covered with a thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. That poor little child sounds pretty homely. Um, I don't know why, but when I was reading this, I pictured a Furby. <laughs> red, hairy, I don't know. But as Esau was being born, they could see the other baby grabbing his heel. And so they named him Jacob, which in the original Hebrew language means heel grabber. But this Hebrew word also has a hostile sense to it when it refers to dodging at someone's heels or being a deceiver or a cheat. So names and their meanings in Hebrew culture was a really big deal. A Hebrew parent did not pick out the name just because they liked the way it sounded or because your first daughter was an E, your second one and your third one should be too. They understood that your name was to be a legacy. Your name was your destiny. In fact, the Hebrew word for name is the word Shem. And Shem literally means etching or engrave. So this baby boy is given a really difficult legacy. You will be a heel grabber. You'll be a deceiver. You'll constantly be hurting people. So before he ever has a chance, they speak a name over this little boy, which sets his destiny. And isn't that how it still works today? 
Sure, our names no longer carry the weight or the meaning and the legacy that they did then. But I think for a whole lot of us, we have had names spoken over us as children, and sometimes that still continues to define us. Words matter so much. Do you remember that rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? There's no truth to that. Or the one, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say to me bounces off and sticks to you. Right, as kids, we learn really early on that words can hurt. And so to protect ourselves, we develop defense mechanisms. The truth is, sticks and stones may break bones, but words break hearts. And the truth is, our souls are not made of rubber. They're more like a sponge. And they absorb all kinds of cruel and unkind toxic words. And to cover up those wounds, we develop defense mechanisms. I learned really quickly in middle school that if I laugh at myself first, if maybe I was the one to mock how clumsy I was or how terrible I was at playing sports, then maybe I could fool them into thinking I wasn't being affected by the words and jokes, or how incredibly embarrassing it was that I couldn't make a basket or connect with a volleyball and hope they didn't notice. We do this all the time, don't we? We mock ourselves about our weight, about our jobs, about our insecurities. We're really good at developing defense mechanisms. But the truth is, we may laugh, but we are wounded. And maybe those wounds are even deeper. My grandpa is one of the dearest, kindest men that I know. He's kind and he's sweet and he will fix anything for me. He's incredibly artistic. He hand-lettered signs and semis before vinyl lettering was even a thing. And I loved watching him when I was a little girl and smelling the paint. He would always have his tongue out just a bit as he concentrated on the semis. It was really, really an artistic beauty. My mom would talk so fondly about her mom's parents, and we would visit my great-grandparents a lot, but never her dad's. And as I grew older, my grandpa's story came out bit by bit. His dad was an incredibly mean man with his words and his actions. He belittled my grandpa his whole life, and he called him names, telling him over and over how stupid he was or that he would amount to nothing. My precious grandpa is 89, and he talks more about those things in his childhood today than he ever did. He'll talk sometimes with tears in his eyes, telling me that he just wanted his dad to approve of him and love him. Those deep wounds from those painful words spoken over him and the actions done to him. Wounds hurt and they shape and form how we walk out life. And so I wonder, as we begin the story of Jacob and Esau, if the source of all the wounds that begin to unravel over the next 10 chapters begin right here, in this moment, with a couple words spoken over a baby boy. I wonder if this is the moment when the twin boys who should be built-in best friends don't share a special bond with a secret language and a fierce devotion to one another.
quite the opposite. They instead become bitter enemies with just a few hurtful words. Because notice what happens in the story next. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. So a birthright was an inheritance. It was money and property and the things that they owned. Yeah, I'll feed you, but first you have to sell me your birthright. That's way worse than, yeah, I'll give you a piece of my Halloween candy, but first you have to clean my room. What a really terrible thing to do to your brother. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. Promise me. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is something really interesting that I learned this week. Many rabbis believe that Jacob and Esau are probably right around the age of 15 when this happens. And they think this because lentil stew was and still is the Hebrew traditional meal of mourning. Kind of like a casserole or ham buns. So these boys would have been about 15 when their grandpa died, Abraham. So the background to this story is likely Abraham's funeral, their grandpa. That kind of puts things into perspective, doesn't it? When Esau says, look, I'm about to die, give me the stew, it would be easy for us to think he's being melodramatic. I mean, maybe a little bit. I'm starving to death here. But he's being 15. And this is how 15-year-olds process death. He's exhausted, he's emotional, and he's hungry. None of us really shine in those kind of moments. My girls, Emma and Ellie, were around this age when their papa died. His death brought great emotion and exhaustion in them in the days that followed. Deep grief. And those feelings can make you a bit irrational at times. And I think this is what Esau might have been feeling in this moment. If the rabbis are correct, his grandpa had just died. And so he's clumsily processing his grief. There's four quick verbs in that one verse. Ate, drank, got up, left. Esau was hurting. He wasn't thinking. And Jacob pounced on that. This is the first time we see Jacob living into the legacy of his name. He manipulates the situation and he steals from his brother. Jacob is determined, even before his birth, as he's grabbing the heel, he's going to grab that birthright and the blessing of the firstborn. Since he's not the outdoorsy type, he uses his brains, not brawn, to get it. Jacob is a trickster. He's an underdog character that uses his wit and his cunning to grab what doesn't belong to him. And as a young man who prefers the tents to the hunt, Jacob knows how to cook. And he uses this skill and this knowledge of Esau's weakness to trade a bowl of soup for Esau's birthright. And it's a trade that Esau willingly makes. The wound that began with a word is now spreading. 
And by the end of chapter 27, which we are told is 25 years later, so the Jacob and Esau are about 40, things really began to unravel, where even deeper division sets in. Now, chapter 17 records this elaborate plot between Rebekah the mom and Jacob the son against Esau the dad and Isaac. So mom and son versus father and son, which is a battle that should not be fought. And the goal of this plot is for Jacob to steal Esau's blessing. Jacob has already stolen the birthright, the inheritance, but now the goal is to steal the birthright, or to steal the blessing too. And this blessing is a really big deal. This goes way back to Grandpa Abraham, who over a hundred years earlier was promised by God that he would make their family into a great nation and that he would bless them abundantly. And this promise was to be passed down from oldest son to oldest son to oldest son. Someday they believed that one of these sons would be the Messiah, the savior of the world. So receiving this blessing was a much bigger deal than just getting the birthright. The birthright was about money and property, but this blessing was about history and their future and Jacob steals it. In this narrative, Jacob is not characterized in the most favorable of ways. Jacob is depicted as grabbing his brother's firstborn right, which will be continued in the characterization of Jacob as a trickster in the upcoming stories that will mark his way in the world. Not only his brother Esau, but his father Isaac and his uncle Laban will all eventually be outwitted by the younger brother. I encourage you to read chapter 27 this week on your own to see the depth and the planning of deceit between Rebekah and Jacob towards Isaac and Esau. So with his mom's help, Jacob disguises himself as Esau. Esau was a hairy guy, right? So Jacob killed a goat and he covered his neck and his arms and his hands so he was hairy too. He put on one of Esau's best outfits and he sneaks into his father's room who the text tells us Isaac is nearly blind, and he pretends to be Esau and steals the sacred blessing. So I'm going to start with verse 18 of 27. So Jacob took the food to his father. My father, he said. Yes, my son, Isaac answered. Who are you, Esau or Jacob? Jacob replied, it's Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Here's the wild game. Now sit up and eat it so you can give me your blessing. Isaac asked, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God put it in my path, Jacob replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come closer so I can touch you and make sure you are really Esau. So Jacob went closer to his father and Isaac touched him. The voice is Jacob's, but the hands are Esau's, Isaac said. But he did not recognize Jacob, because Jacob's hands felt hairy, just like Esau's. So Isaac prepared to bless Jacob. But are you really my son Esau, he asked. Yes, I am, Jacob replied. Then Isaac said, now my son, bring me the wild game. Let me eat it, and I will give you my blessing. So Jacob took the food to his father, and Isaac ate it. He also drank the wine that Jacob served him. Then Isaac said to Jacob, 
Please come a little closer and kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he was finally convinced, and he blessed his son. And Jacob knew that once his dad had promised him the blessing, had given him the blessing, he would never go back on that promise. And Jacob lied and lied and lied, and he stole that blessing. So we're going to pick the story back up in the moment when Isaac and Esau find out what happened. This next scene is so powerful, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Verse 30, after Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said, oh, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled violently because that's kind of what it feels like to be betrayed, isn't it? Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came in and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry. And he said to his father, Bless me too, my father. Can you feel this moment, this heartbreak? Bless me too, my father. But Isaac said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And then Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you, and I have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. Do you hear his pain, his wound, the pain behind the repetition of my father, my father? Now, the story between the two brothers doesn't end here in this moment. There will be a long and strained process that eventually leads to forgiveness and reconciliation. But I want to pause here this week. Because, you see, the temptation to jump ahead to the happy ending is strong. But Esau doesn't have that luxury. He would have to wait years for that moment for the wounds to be healed. And I want to leave us here this week because the truth is a lot of pain doesn't go away immediately. Most wounds don't heal overnight. And I wonder if some of us are in the years part of the waiting and if we wonder if the Lord remembers us. But sometimes the very best way we can honor that pain is to simply find God in it. 
with us, right in the middle of our waiting, right in the middle of our weeping. And the temptation to just rush to that happy ending, oh, that would be so wonderful if it really worked that way. But sometimes healing takes years. And as I found myself pondering this story this week, the story of a son forsaken who felt forsaken by his father, I thought of the cross. Because the words of Esau sound really similar to the words of Jesus on the cross. My father, my father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heartbreak. And like Jacob received what Esau deserved, we receive what Jesus deserved. We deserve death, we deserve punishment, and Jesus deserved life. But instead, he got death, he got punishment, so that we may live and have life to the full. There is a huge difference in the story, though. And it's not because Jesus was tricked into it. It's because he chose. He chose to take our place. And that is what the cross is all about. You see, the most common question I think we ask when we are wounded is, why, God, did this happen to me? And we can get so wrapped up in that question that we can forget that God is right here, right here in it with us, feeling the wound with us. And it's because of Jesus feeling that wound with us that we are healed. That is the message of the cross. In Isaiah we read, but he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. It's not first and foremost about God rescuing us from that pain, about taking it away. The cross is about God entering into our pain, which is a pain he truly understands. And he longs to heal us. He longs to restore those broken relationships. He longs to be the source of our light and our healing. And we will look more at that in weeks to come. But today, I think it's important to just stop and acknowledge that the storms around us are real, that the wounds are real. But if we can find God there in the middle of the wounds, in the middle of the waiting, then we can find forgiveness and peace and hope. My maiden name is Vanderlucht, and that's very Dutch. It is a pain to spell, but the meaning of it is really beautiful. Vander means from the, and lucht means light. My ancestors were known as from the light. It's always made me wonder if they were lighthouse keepers. I've always loved lighthouses, probably because of that, but also for what they represent. Lighthouses represent a harbor, a safety, a place to rest, a home in the midst of a storm. Jesus calls himself the light of the world, and having a relationship with him brings us harbor, it brings us safety, a place to rest and home. In the fifth Anne book, Anne's House of Dreams, there's a dear old man named Captain Jim. He's the faithful lighthouse keeper. And as I was reading that book this spring, I found that one of the themes woven throughout that book 
was that there's safety in the light that a lighthouse brings, where the weary sailors can come home and find rest from their storms. And it made me think, as we are tossed about in the storms of life, we can have a steadfast hope in the light that Jesus brings to us. And in his light, we find that rest. Because sometimes life can feel like a giant storm, doesn't it? And all too often, I can try to break that storm on my own. All too often, I can try to swim in the raging waters, constantly getting pulled under. But the Bible speaks of our God as our strength and our light, which sounds an awful lot like a lighthouse. In the middle of the storm, he is there. In the middle of the cruel words, a financial hardship, a broken relationship, a heartache, disease, the wound, he is there. Does that mean the storm is gone away? Unfortunately, a lot of times it does not. But the message of the cross is that he meets us in the middle of that storm. God is right there in it with us, feeling that wound with us. And it's because of Jesus we are healed. He endured the breaking that makes us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. And sometimes I need to be reminded that I don't have to face the storm alone. And I want to know my God so well that I trust him so deeply where I steady myself, taking in a deep breath to brave the waves and locking eyes with the one who is with me. Our names, our stories, our wounds, our storms are his. We read in Isaiah 49, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Our names are written on his hands. We are his his strength and his light are stronger than this storm. Only with his strength and only with his light can we truly rest and find a deep peace in that waiting, in the wounding storms in our lives. When we name our wounds, his light begins to shine, and that is where the healing takes place. This morning, God invites us to bring our wounds to him here at this table. Today, we remember the God who held nothing back from us, who gave his son so that we could be healed and find our way back to him. When we take the Lord's Supper, we recognize both the promise of a new life at the end of our story, but also a renewal right now that is healing the wounds within us. He invites us to come and gather around this table because we are all a part of the same family. We offer our brokenness to him today, knowing that true healing is possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. In a moment, you may come up and receive the bread and the juice. You can take it and return to your seat. If you don't feel comfortable, that's okay. You can stay where you are. In Luke 22, it says, Jesus gathered with his very best friends and said to them, I have been so eager to eat this meal with you. Jesus loved them so much, 
and he knew what was about to happen. Yet he was delighted to have that last meal with them. Jesus knows us, every part of who we are, and he's eager to invite us to come to the same table. Jesus stopped at nothing. He gave his life so that we could be healed. We come to this table this morning together to remember him, to remember what he did for us with a deep gratefulness. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, everything we are and everything we're not, he loves us so deeply. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. Then Jesus took the cup, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you. It's the new covenant of my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember me. Come, for all things have been made ready.